Hello, Hive Nation, and welcome back to the Hive Nation podcast, where each week we bring you leaders in personal and professional development from the Hive Nation. Today, we're with Chris Sankey and Jason Barris, as always, and here's Jason to introduce our guest. Uh, thanks, Greg. Uh, Chris, uh, thanks for being here, first of all. Chris is a very close friend of mine. Uh, I've met Chris here uh, quite a few years ago now already, and uh I have nothing but the utmost respect for for Mr. Chris Sankey. Chris is uh, very well, uh, very well spoken. He is um, highly involved in the Indigenous community within Canada and and or in North America, for that matter. Uh, but Chris has done speaking engagements uh, literally across the world on the importance of the uh, energy sector within uh uh, Canada and and the world and and not just not just the energy sector and and you know we're not going to we're not going to uh, the beat any drum here necessarily but you know the the green initiatives come into play as well with that in in today's day and, and Chris has done that as well so um, Chris uh, is, is an advisor on the energy development uh, for Indigenous leaders um, the, which is very important today uh, in in our in our day. Uh, Chris is also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, which is uh, a very high um, initiative for, for Chris as well, and he takes it very seriously. Uh, Chris is also a, a former elected counselor uh, from the Lac Croix uh, First Nation, and uh, Chris is very uh, proud of his heritage and very proud of, of where he comes from, and uh, we, we are very happy to have you here today, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Chris recently uh, wrote an article on um, on the securing the, the Canadian energy development uh, and and the 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 um, energy development within Canada itself. Uh, Chris, would you like to just tell us a little bit about that and or a little bit about yourself as well? Yeah, sure. Certainly. Uh... First, uh, again, thank you for having me, but uh, for sure, I am from Lakua Lambs. It means Island of Roses. Uh, it's a small uh, Indigenous community, uh, 24 uh, kilometers north of Prince Rupert, British Columbia, here in the North Coast. It's part of the Coast Simshan territory of Lakua Lambs and Matlakatla. Uh, I was uh, once elected, twice elected, uh, for uh, the governing body of Lac Colombe's band, where I was the chair of the economic development portfolio for the governing body, uh, as one of two uh, negotiators for the first ever environmental monitoring agreement between Canada, BC, and the Coast Simshian, and me being a representative for Lac Colombe's. Uh, I was also part of an experienced team that helped negotiate the $36 billion Pacific Northwest LNG. Uh, project, the LNG uh, liquefaction uh, project that was supposed to be here for Pacific Northwest, which is Petronas. Uh, I sat on multiple uh, committees for the governing body itself, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, don't get me wrong, there's also a lot of challenges, but it is rewarding when you're trying to help your people. Uh, so now, currently, I'm back in the private sector. Uh, I've been working in this sector now for the last four or five years, but with a total of 15, 16 years experience uh, working in the energy sector. Uh, I provide strategic advice to both industry and Indigenous leaders and around energy or resource development, and which we call responsible resource development. 
uh, and how best uh, Indigenous communities can work alongside in partnership with industry. And one of the things that uh, I've been able to be a part of and witness is that if you don't have uh, Indigenous alignment along a proposed corridor, whatever that may, corridor may look like, whether it's uh, labeled as economic, pipeline, utility, uh, if they're in the communities are not aligned, it's going to be very difficult to move projects in Canada today. So I provide advice to both both areas uh, of expertise. I, I want to be very clear that I do not speak for the Indigenous leaders. They're more than capable of doing that. And I do not speak for the energy leaders, as they're also more than capable of doing that. What I do is provide advice and direction and how best that conversation could happen between both the corporate world and the Indigenous elected body. How the Indigenous elected body moves their governing structure along is entirely up to that community, uh, whether they involve their hereditary as a collective or if it's just a governing body or their ECDEV, that responsibility falls on them. So I just want to be really clear on that because uh, I don't want people to get the false sense that I speak for anyone other than what I do as a professional in the energy world. So the article itself was pertaining to the fact that over the last 10 years, we witnessed a significant amount of backlash when it came to responsible resource development. And given that I had the experience uh, with a project like Petronas, the LNG project that was supposed to go in here, Prince Hubert, I noticed uh, how things went down and I was a part of trying to help rectify that. And in that whole process, our, our, there was a significant amount of our community members that felt their voices weren't being heard. Whether I agreed or disagreed, the reality is this, is that in the communities, when you're trying to propose a project, it's extremely important to sit down with both those who oppose, those who agree, and those who are undecided and get a perspective on what would work. Um, we can't speak for anyone that is, is for or against or indifferent for a project. All we can do is promote and uh, present the facts around energy development. So that's really what my job entailed was that, look, here are the facts, here are the pros, here are the cons. Um, with any major development such as this, uh, you have to keep in mind, it wasn't just $36 billion we were looking at. It was a total of $650 billion of proposed projects. So, I mean, and we are new uh, to the game and understanding how these projects work. So needless to say, there was a lot of lessons learned. What would you say to to anybody who who would maybe challenge you on the you know on the en on the energy sector and and or the the need for the energy sector? Well, it, first and foremost, I always tell people if you're going to challenge and if you're going to disagree, make sure you do that that with the the facts uh, that you are uh, greatly informed of the impacts and bring that to the table with your concerns. Uh, don't listen to social media. Don't listen to non-government organizations and activists. Take the best available information, which we have to do. And that's what you do is you present that information to the people and explain to them what the information entails in detail. Not the technical data, not all that stuff. We have experts for that, but explain to the grassroots people the impacts 
both the good and the challenging when it comes to development, like any project. Uh, like if you think of a house, there's going to be environmental impact when you're trying to lay foundation and pick a site. You put that into the context of something bigger, well, you, you scale it up 10 times the impact or a thousand times the impact. And you try to get to under, get to the grassroots people and understand what their concerns are. So my advice would be is that if you're going to disagree, disagree with, with the facts rather than a hearsay or some misinformation that's being proposed because there's an agenda behind it. I found that when we did our project, um, when we are proposing it, we proposed it in a way that where uh, community members could make an informed decision themselves. We didn't just do it once, not twice, not three times. I think we did it four times. And people will still always disagree, and that's okay. That's a part of democracy. Uh, but I think it's really key that the best developable information, both the environmental assessment impacts as well as development and the longevity which in our case was over 40 years of what the remediation plan is going to be once that project comes to the end of its lifespan and then what's next, right? So I always tell people that when these projects are being proposed, uh, you need to understand we need to think seven generations ahead. So even though you're proposing a significant amount of money to Indigenous people, it's always about the land and the resources to which they provide to our community. So when we're looking at a project, we're thinking of the social innovation perspective from Indigenous uh, concept, which involves our culture, our community, the people, our language, our arts, our history. While you're incorporating the need to build a project, you need to sit down and chat with us to talk about how best we can incorporate both, both worlds. And I think that's something that we didn't do a very good job of at the first time uh, of trying to understand people's concerns. Because... You know, all of us, no matter who you are, when you have a chance to try to bring people out of poverty, sometimes you forget that, you know, it wasn't always just about the money. It's about the quality of life. But I don't know anybody that's living in poverty that is happy. And so I thought, well, you know, we got to help get our people out of poverty and getting to meaningful jobs. And how best can we do that? Well, the best way we could do that is providing the best available information and show them what could be. Uh, but, you know, even though that project didn't go ahead, uh, I've noticed more of our people buying homes. You know, a lot of them got jobs of port-related developments, whether it's with the coal terminal, which is called Trigon, which our communities of Luckland's Malakala are part owner in, uh, the Prince Hubert Port with DP World, the expansion there, Alta Gas, Pembina. Uh, there was a lot of other smaller scale projects that came after Pacific Northwest. And it's a very good thing to see when you grew up with, you know, with some of these individuals and both, both of us and our people have struggled uh, trying to make ends meet. And now to see them buying property and buying homes, even going to Disneyland, going to Mexico, or even going to Vancouver, anytime they want and feeling de dependent on themselves rather than being independent of a system that has failed us greatly. Uh, that's you answered my question. My my, my follow up question question that was going to be around the economic development within you know uh, within the indigenous communities and how you can uh, influence them to you know make a decision. Uh, that being said, 
the, uh, not every decision has to be made on an economic scale, right? Like, so uh, it's not necessarily about the economics, as you said, it's more of a impact uh, on the First Nations. Is that fair to say? Yeah, look, when when my advice to big proponents, when they're coming to propose a major project, you know, when we're talking billions, don't just think of the project build. Don't just think about from cradle to grave or don't just think about when can I get the shovel in the ground. You have to be able to think of when you're building this project, you're also building a community to, to grow our own timber, to sort of speak. We know as Indigenous people that we don't have the full capacity that a lot of the industry has. We get all that. We know we don't have the red seals. We don't have the management uh, to the capacity and the standards required to manage and build a major development project such as LNG. We get all that. But that doesn't mean that industry shouldn't stop to make a plan on the human resources side when it comes to training to employment, that we shouldn't start somewhere to make sure that in 10 or 20 or 30 years that we are effectively and properly managing these major projects with our own people. The goal is to build capacity to reach the same standard, if not better than the rest of Canada. Uh, I don't think it does anybody justice when you are trying to build something and lower that level playing field in order to accommodate a, a populace such as ours, because what's going to happen is you're not going to get the full potential out of our people that are more than capable of reaching that status of managing a multi-billion dollar project. So it's important that we not only pull from industry expertise and policymakers, but at the same time, grow our own timber. So when we're building these projects, we're thinking of the community as a whole from our culture to our arts, our language, and just the overall infrastructure of who we are as Indigenous people to Canada. So what would you say to the to the next generation of Indigenous uh, people coming up, like through the ranks? Uh, what would you say to them in order to, for them to continue on your, like your uh, message and your journey. And how would you, how would you uh, maybe advise them on how to do it best or what's, what would be their next, what would be the best practice for them? I think one first have an open mind. I think that the environmental groups did a great job of demonizing the energy sector. Sure. Uh, and when it's the oil and gas sector that has prolonged life, I mean, let's state the facts here that sure. without hydrocarbons, we don't have a sophisticated uh, healthcare system that requires hydrocarbons to make the tools to save our lives. Uh, the science behind a lot of the things that are happening requires hydrocarbons. Uh, every day that we live and breathe, uh, everything we are surrounded by with our, in our household we are surrounded by everything, hydrocarbon and minerals. So I think my advice to young people is to really understand energy literature. What does it mean? What does the oil and gas sector mean to us as human beings on planet Earth? Really, that's how you need to think about it. And then you take that and what does it mean to us when we are living our daily lives. A lot of people don't understand, but we actually give off a thousand BTUs just by breathing. 
uh, British thermal units, which is emissions. So, but I'm wearing hydrocarbons right now. We're wearing hydrocarbons right now. My watch, my phone, my headphones, like everything we're doing right now requires hydrocarbons in order to function as a society. So I think it's imperative that industry, our educational institutes and indigenous people come together and start talking about energy literature. What is gas? What is diluent? What is bitumen? What is LNG? What is diesel? What is hydrogen? All these things that encompass in order for us to live and breathe and thrive in today's society requires uh, the technology to develop these fuels and products and services in order for us to continue to live. And tell something tangible that is scalable and economy of scale and that is proven that we could uh, use alternative fuels to live, then I'm all for it. But right now, we're not there as a society. So how do we move forward in order for us to have a win-win scenario with our environmental groups and those that are pro-development? I think the biggest thing that I've noticed is that people are more concerned about the production of oil and gas. They feel that the emissions rate isn't being lowered and that we're not doing enough to mitigate tailing ponds. We're not doing enough to lower the emissions and the production of gas and oil. Because it is very a, a very intense uh, system, electrical system to make oil and gas. So how do we do that? And so I, I'm really happy to say that I'm working with a technical and technology company uh, that has found a way to help mitigate and reduce or eliminate emissions altogether. So that means industry and the technical industry are coming together to finding better and cleaner ways to produce our fuel that will lower the emissions, that will lower people's uh, stress levels around this whole climate change narrative that's going on, and as well as it will help bring cleaner fuels to market. And when if we don't look at LNG as a green, clean fuel, if we don't look at these technologies that are going to help reduce emissions and producing oil and producing gas, then what are we doing as a society to combat the other third world countries that are using coal and other dangerous fuels to heat their homes and just to function as a country. We're not doing anything. Emissions aren't going to knock on the door of every country and ask to come in. It's a global issue. So how do we combat that? I believe Canada has the cleanest LNG in the world. And we have some of the brightest minds in the world that I, I, I believe that I've been privileged to get in front of that are solving those very issues that the environmental groups have had concern over. So we stepped up. The oil and gas industry has been stepping up repeatedly to meet the mandates of the BC Clean Fuel Act, to meet the mandate of the climate change and the, 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 the accord to uh, help re reduce global emissions. But we can't do that if Canada cannot produce the cleaner fields that it requires to do in order to meet those targets to reduce emissions on a global scale. I'm happy to hear that, Chris, that you guys have, have taken to that next level of the cleaner emissions thing, because 
uh, on Saturday, our our, uh, our taxes are going up another 15 bucks a ton to uh, fight climate change, which makes no sense to me how anything can be taxed, how a tax fixes climate change. That makes zero sense to me. Well, it doesn't. Um, let's be honest here. Uh, even uh, some of the individuals that are in government when they're reviewing this policy it actually puts on a huger tax burden to the populace and it's not doing anything to change climate change it's not doing anything to reduce emissions what you're doing is you're taking it from the average family and making them pay for something that they can't afford that's it and and so you're get they're getting hurt in the grocery store they're getting hurt at the fuel pump they're, they can't afford homes this is not helping the only way this is ever going to work, and this is, again, speaking to professionals and experts in this area, is that through new technology that is, is, is emerging within the energy sector, it's nice to see uh, people looking at wind turbines. I'm not a big fan of them, but if it's going to reduce help, help reduce the emissions uh, target to get a tax credit back to the companies, then great, good for them. But that and solar panel, uh, they're just, that's not what's going to reduce emissions. If anything, if we could learn from Germany, uh, who went down that road, the emissions skyrocketed and so did the electrical bill. In essence, they actually contributed more emissions to the environment than they would have if they had just used natural gas. And I mean, They've told us this. I mean, they've said, basically, don't do what we did. Uh, and so that that is concerning for me as a Canadian citizen, as an Indigenous person, because the reality is that when the energy sector is bad, when the cost of living inflation is up, it's Indigenous communities more than any other community on the, uh, in, the in the country is most impacted. Why? Because we don't have basic, the basic infrastructures for a supply chain system to help and provide goods and services to our communities so when the prices of oil and gas is is up and the inflation is up well how do our people are, how are we able to pay for them to get to and from a doctor yeah. without giving an arm and a leg and when when people are having to choose from buying groceries or skipping meals or turning the lights on that's wrong in a country as rich as ours, in a country that has this amount of vast resources to help our people get out of poverty, not just Indigenous, all Canadians, to prosper, that fact we can't move major projects today in a timely manner is just unfathomable to me. It's not part of the narrative, though, Chris. That's part of the problem. It's it's causing it's causing a lot of challenges. When you take a look at the our neighbors to the south, it takes three to six months to get their permit. We take three to six years. Yep. Uh, if you take a look at LNGC, uh, it took them fifteen years to get that project moving and mm -hmm. to finally get the shovel in the ground. So we we are at a disadvantage right now, and the policies and the individuals that are putting in the this uh, green initiative thinking that they're actually helping uh, Canada and its, and its resource tech. Not just, they get, they just remember, this isn't just about oil and gas. Look what's happened to our forestry industry as well and fishing. These policies are hurting us. Uh, who am I, given I'm Indigenous, but who am I 
to tell another indigenous community what they can and cannot do in their backyard. Who am I to tell them what sort of sticks they should cut down? Yep. That's not, that's not my place to say it's like in our culture and our hereditary system, maybe get well, guts, guess bit what I get well, guts from the tribe. And I I'm in line for a name called Wudzim, and it means a person that enters quietly. And uh, I, I laugh about it sometimes because I, I, I joked about my, my uncle when I was, he was going to pass this down to me. But the reality is I'm not allowed to speak into another person's tribe like say the Kinnikinji, which is another tribe within the Nine Nine Tribes, I, I'm not allowed to do that. It violates our protocol. So who are we, both as Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, to tell others, whether it's in the Lower Mainland, Central Coast, or Interior, of what they should do when it comes to economic reconciliation? It's none of our business, nope. and it is up to the leaders from the neighboring communities and the communities that are proposing to get together and put their differences on the table and solve some of those challenges that you may disagree with. I've always said that in order for us to solve many of these global challenges, we have to get to the difficult conversation. And a lot of it is around oil and gas. You have to have these conversations and get it out. That's where all the answers lie. If we're not talking, we're not talking from the coast to inland to Northeast BC or to Treaty 8 in Alberta or anywhere for that matter. Well, there's going to be all these viewpoints coming out that are that I that I've witnessed that there's a lot of fabrication and misinformation that's being fed into the media by the environmental groups. But what I'm finding is that there are more leaders from different parts of the province and other provinces now communicating on how best they could work together for the greater good of not just Indigenous people, but for all Canadians. It will lower taxes, get people back to work. It will provide much-needed infrastructure dollars. It will provide much better health, education, and services, not just to the youth, but to the elders, and more housing for those who can't afford it. I mean, it just astonishes me that people think increasing taxes is going to help the the lower income families. It is not. If anybody is going to be greatly impacted by this, it's the low income families that are having to pay the same price as you and I, but we have a better uh, annual income than them. It makes no sense to me. Even if you think you're going to give back 200 bucks a year, 300 bucks a year, that alone can't even pay for the light bill these days. No. I, I mean, I just bought some groceries and I mean, just a steak now, one steak is 35 bucks. That's insane. Crazy. Right. It, it, it's, it's wrong. And, and the fact that we're, we're um, let, allowing the average Canadian who's making less than $15,000 a year, give or take, having to pay these prices is just, how could you live? I grew up in poverty. I grew up where I was. my family was on social assistance and to try to make ends meet. We used to be able to leverage from the sea and go hunting. Now we can't do that because it's, it's fairly scarce. But now today, how can people even survive? 
and, and there's only a few that I know from our community that goes out and harvests shellfish and fish and they try to give it away to the elders because they don't have the means to get to and from the docks or go out fishing anymore. But that enough, that's just not enough. It's not even touching the, the iceberg here, the tip of the iceberg. So we got to do something here and increasing taxes, that's not going to help. And then they talk about... Um, we need to increase the and the average salary. Well, what's going to happen is that the mom and pop stores can't afford that. They can't afford to increase the average wage because they not only now got to pay more wages, they got to pay more benefits, and then they got to try to survive themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just not economically feasible. So now what's happening is you have the bigger companies coming in and scooping up the smaller companies, uh, the mom and pop stores are going out of business. Businesses, uh, ch- chain, big chain companies are amalgamating, and it's the average Canadian that is trying to make a buck is the one that's getting drowned out here. Mm-hmm. We talk about our the spirit of entrepreneurship in Canada. Well, we can't do that if you can't even make a go of it. First of all. And the fact that people are, that are making between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars a year can't afford a home in Canada—that is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that is so wrong, and I just—it just doesn't make any sense to me. The road we're heading down—I, I, some days I think I get it, other days I'm, I'm perplexed, just as the next person. And for what? I mean, people need to work, and they need to make a livable wage and by going after the mom and pop stores and trying to make them pay for this increase in salaries. Well, I can guarantee you, which has already happened. uh, A lot of those small businesses are out of business because they cannot survive. They just can't survive. The numbers don't work. It's like saying we could manufacture all our timber and our process, all our fish and oil all here in Canada when we can't, because we cannot, the Western countries cannot compete with countries like china where the cost of labor is significantly lower than the cost of labor in a tradesperson in canada it just doesn't work the numbers don't work no so chris you've mentioned it uh, many times in this conversation and, and it's obviously important to the indigenous culture of of that community but when we're creating this dialogue around things like energy but really anything that can have contention a large part of it is that education and having informed conversations. But when you're having those, you know, more difficult conversations is a lot of it, you know, yes, this is an energy sector initiative, but the ripple effect that it's going to create in the community, in the culture, in the residual jobs, in the longevity of not just one community, but Western Canada, Canada as a whole, is, is that a big part of the solution? Yeah, now I find those conversations are happening. I think a lot of our people are starting to understand that it isn't just impacting us. It's impacting the next generation and then it's impacting our neighbors and other Canadians that are throughout that corridor from from east to west. It's it's impacting everybody. So I, I'm finding that in my discussions that the leaders recognize that. They understand the need for development that not just helps our community, but helps all Canadians to get an opportunity to work in this sector. Uh, I know there's a lot of conversation right now between a revenue sharing agreement between the federal and provincial government with Indigenous communities and broader Canada. 
uh, I think that that's a good step in the right direction. Uh, when you take a look at Norway and, and uh, uh, Dubai and all these places, they actually do provide a dividend back to their their citizenship. Um, how that looks in Canada, I don't know. Will we get there? I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that Canada is was built on the resource sector. Uh, and now that our people are hungry to be a global player and want to be partners with industry and our neighbours, I think now is the time to step up and really uh, get out of our own way and start building these projects where we can grow the economy and take care of the environment. We're more than capable of doing that. And the reason I say that Indigenous communities are the solution to the global energy crisis is because we have witnessed without the consent or the collaboration or alignment within different territories in British Columbia, Alberta, or elsewhere, those projects just won't get off the ground. This isn't a ultimatum. This isn't something that we just thought up. There, we realize this now because the courts and British Columbia Supreme Court has recognized the rights and title of Indigenous people inherently of where all of these pipes and utility lines are erected. So without that support, from cradle to grave, from tidewater to inland to upstream, it's going to be difficult. So I think Enbridge has done a great job in terms of their proposed line. I think there are companies that could improve more around engagement. But if those communities aren't aligned and their internal differences aren't resolved, then it's going to impact everybody. So it's important that leader-to-leadership dialogue amongst different nations continue and they continue to communicate and how best they could work together. We recognize that shipping and pipeline and utility corridors are going to impact not just Indigenous communities, it's going to impact all communities. So we have to be able to work together on this. And that's not an easy feat and not everyone's going to like the decision. But it comes down to, again, a democracy of choice that a select few should not be blocking projects if the vast majority of the people within that community or in that region or in the country have agreed to build a project in a safe and sustainable manner that grows the economy and protects the environment. I will continue to say that. I have never met a person who wants to destroy the environment on behalf of development. I have never, and I don't think you have either. Not at so all. it's it's always been about caring for the environment. Has the energy industry always been on good standing over the last 60, 70 years? No, but it has now. Uh, if anything that we've learned throughout this process and with the environmental movement is that we have forced the hand of industry to look at alternative ways to produce cleaner fuels. And with that, the technical side and industry has come together to solve those challenges. So it's the everyday women and men that have stepped up and have become innovators within their own field in, in hopes to produce a lower emission or zero emission fuel so we could get cleaner fuels to the market and get access to new markets in Southeast Asia or elsewhere. It's very important. You know, Chris, we can play the shoulda, coulda, woulda game all day long. No, yeah. pick an industry. It doesn't look good industry, right? Yeah. I don't think anybody has ever, you know, stood out and said, you know, we're number one uh, ever at anything. 
And so the shoulda, coulda, game, finger-pointing game, uh, you know, happens on a daily basis, and especially around the energy sector, because it's an easy target, right? And so, um, you know, your insight to, towards that, I think, you know, we could probably have this conversation all day, Chris, to be honest with you. <laughs> but Well, yeah, 100%, right? It's an important conversation. I mean, you have to imagine a world without energy, and then imagine a world with the current energy infrastructure we have, and how could we improve on that? That should be the focus. That's but, scary to think about a yeah. world without energy. Yeah. Now what? Well, you take I a look at Saskatoon here. We would freeze. We would literally freeze in the bed. Yeah, hundred percent. It just doesn't work, and people forget that 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 you know a lot of our communities in rural areas they rely on oil and gas. And that's just the reality of it. If you want to go live in minus 40, well, then you better be prepared for the right energy source. And, you know, when you take a look at these countries that just basic electricity, it's something like, I think it's six, between six and 800 million people don't have the basic necessities just to cook a bowl of soup. And they're using uh, dangerous fuels and the stats are out there. Like, I mean, there's young kids ages two to, to, to 10 that are dying because they're inhaling these fumes just to heat their homes and cook their food. Yeah. So Canada has, is in a position to help combat those challenges, not just here at home, but in their respective countries. Yeah, let's be a leader instead of a follower, as per se, and, and you know, give into the agenda and let's be a leader now and, you know, take take uh, take the bull by the horns, I guess, if you want to put it that way and, and you know, move the world forward. Absolutely. We could do that. You know, look, I was in South America and it's the same thing down there. Indigenous engagement is front and center to be at the table in their boardroom, to have a seat and a say and a decision on what the next generation is going to inherit. I mean, that's huge. I mean, we have never seen that before. And that's precedent setting. I mean, you take a look at the Heisler here in Canada now. It's the largest um, uh, majority-owned First Nation LNG project. I mean, you go up there, everyone's working. I mean, even in our community here, the people that want to work are working. Yeah. And so, but we have an opportunity to transcend Canada in partnership with Indigenous communities and our neighbours. Non-Indigenous and Indigenous people working together for the greater good of the country is the path forward so that everybody can prosper. And when I say Indigenous-led is because we were left out of the economy. People want to talk about contracting and jobs. That's well and good in the oil sands. But when you take a look overall in Canada, Indigenous people didn't own a lot of these projects that were right in their backyard. We didn't generate any sole source revenues from the oil, the gas, the fishing or forestry that was taken out of our backyard. We just got jobs and a little bit of training. Now we're owners. So now we're to be a meaningful part of the Canadian economic infrastructure. That's a win-win for the country. Well, Chris, this is a very important uh, conversation. I think it would be great to have you back to continue this, but uh, we're running short of time here and, I, and I'm sure you have uh places to be as well so uh you know i don't i don't know how i can thank you for yeah. for coming on here today this is a great conversation yeah. like i said we could we could talk about this all day chris and absolutely you know we could touch yeah. on, you know we could touch on a hundred different uh subjects within it so 
Absolutely. Uh, well, next one, good will be good to supply chain, Jason. Exactly, buddy. Yeah. Chris, Chris, thanks a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. We're out. Absolutely. Thank you.